0: Eight, seven, six, five, four, three,
1: two, one. Hello and welcome to the Upbeat Cast episode 51 uh my name is Sean Glennis, and I'm here with Jake Trapila. How you doing, Sean? Good, how are you? Doing just well, thank you very much. And Jack Eason.
0: Hey, I'm doing even better than Jake, not that it's a competition.
1: <laughs> Motherfucker. I, <laughs> I'm so uh I I'm so happy that I could steal you guys away from the uh the podcast uh for an evening uh on this podcast. Uh, for right. your for your ears only is what I'm referring to. Obviously, the 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 latest um, podcast on the Optimism Vaccine Network. Yeah, it's a hit. It's a hit. The so they tell me. Uh, Podmass. I think I think AV Club did like a, a exclusive uh, Podmass article that was just about the first episode. So that was pretty cool. Check that out on avclub.com.
2: Yeah, it's pretty cool to, that we hit the radar the kind of audience we're looking for
1: yeah and right off the bat um yeah, yeah. well enough about that because that's not this show um this is as i said optimism vaccine but it's a very special episode so uh last year uh if you do not remember or maybe you weren't a subscriber last year um either way last year i uh did two podcasts uh, in october one with Jake and Jack, and one with Steve and Myros, and that was covering uh, eight horror films from Canadian filmmaker David Cronenberg that I have not had not seen before. So, uh, and that that's kind of because. I, I mean, I was a fan of Cronenberg, but basically, I'm not a huge horror fan. Um, this year, it was actually my my resolution to get into more horror, and so this year I, th- I thought, um, based on my experience from last year, because I still think about like the movies that I watched, um, I, I quite often and sort of took a lot away from from discussing it with you guys. Um, so this year, I thought I would uh, indoctrinate myself into a couple other. Filmmaker's work that you guys Kind of talk about a lot Um and that I sort of don't have A frame of reference for And wanted to learn more about Um so the first One is the work of John Carpenter So Uh I had Seen a couple John Carpenter films Before uh they live I've seen a couple times and talked about it On a podcast at one point On here um And that's great and uh I have also seen uh, memoirs of an invisible man, which I believe came right after they live, uh, which is certainly not uh, like uh, the the John Carpenter that everyone talks about, for instance. Um, So I thought that I would go through uh, a few horror films that you guys picked out for me. Um, And so, yeah, that's what we're here to do. So uh, kind of, off the bat, what do you guys? Can you guys each kind of like talk to me about like uh, your experience? Uh, what Carpenter means in your lives, or 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 where where he came into uh, your fandom for movies?
2: Yeah, certainly. I'll jump in. Um, John Carpenter was basically my gateway to R-rated horror films. Um, when I was 11 years old, my dad and I rented uh, Halloween and A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I watched them both back to back and it scared the shit out of me. And I thought they were both awesome, amazing movies that I was able to experience at such a young age. And um, it wasn't until years later where I sort of sought out the other works of John Carpenter and um, really explored what he had done. But he, as far as the genre goes, he's one of my favorite horror filmmakers Um, up to a certain point because I think you, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but I'd say his work. Sort of has an expiration date as to when he stopped making good films, but I can't quite attest to that because I haven't seen anything he's made post 1994. Uh, but in any case, he really did a lot to the genre and it added, you know, my sense of um, at, helped contribute to my movie going tastes as well as I think establishing this whole new set of rules that horror filmmakers swear by and. Just the way he would craft a film with such remarkably low budget aesthetics and compose the often memorable scores to his films really makes him stand out as one of the finer horror filmmakers in the genre. And uh, yeah, and I love a great handful of his works. So that's that's uh, that's my experience with Carpenter. Yeah, cool.
0: uh, yeah. I was, I was saying like, um, I'd, it's weird. Carpenter is one of those people I don't even have. I don't even really have like youthful memories of John Carpenter movies I just feel like the thing particularly I've just seen that movie all like over and over I don't even remember the first time I saw it it's just one of those movies that's always that I've always watched whenever it was on tv whenever I found it it's just been like perennial the fog uh not as much repeated but like honestly between I I suppose growing up stuff like they live escape from new york um, Big Trouble in Little China. That one ran a lot. I don't know if that runs as much anymore because uh, some people are no fun. And they think it's racist, but it's kind of not and it kind of is uh, in that weird uh, loophole that that is 80s cinema. But um, yeah, no. Carpenter is just a, like like Jake said. He's kind of he's a really I think he's a really good intro person for horror cinema. He's very accessible, very entertaining, very memorable. A lot of people have come in his wake following off what he's done um so yeah i mean honestly my my main the thing that's been blowing my mind this whole time is sean how have you never (laughs) seen these movies like i say i feel like the thing like that was never not on tv at least you're in halloween and yet you managed to see memoirs of an invisible man i think was the one john carpenter film you'd seen before
1: that that was uh well that was like one that my my dad uh, i remember him watching a couple times um but yeah (laughs) so he's the one uh, guy well, have first of all, have either of you guys seen memoirs of an invisible man? No, I saw yes.
2: memoirs of a geisha. <clears throat>
1: That's yeah, they're very of, similar.
0: Uh I, I've uh, seen memoirs of an invisible man, but I actually had to track it down to watch because it was a John Carpenter movie. I don't remember that ever. It probably it probably went on TV at some point, but
1: uh Yeah, I didn't yeah, know it was by him until I like looked for this, like at what his films were that that you guys would be calling from. It's like, oh you- yeah, yeah. Just to jump in real quick,
2: um, I would consider Big Trouble in Little China to be one of my top ten movies of all time. Um, that movie's fucking fantastic. I can sit I, down I and I, I, I I watch like, it any time.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like the complaints, I've had a few people who didn't watch it growing up and are seeing it now, and I, I can understand it being a little bit jarring, but and you know, like obviously it's not politically correct, but at the same time, in a lot of ways, it's actually progressive for its time. It's sort of in that... Yeah, you can't hold it up to all these, you know, modern-day standards. But honestly, it's it's a lot of fun. And I really – I think it's in sure. good spirits. But I'm sure there's a lot of people who would – you could argue that one way or another. Uh, there's certainly – I think what people would not argue is there aren't a lot of films like Big Trouble in Little China. I didn't even know that was I uh,
1: – I didn't even know that was a John Carpenter movie. Oh,
0: um,
1: yeah. And, and uh, I guess like – yeah, the, 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 that probably sounds – weird like i didn't know a lot of these were john carpenter movies like i knew he was a guy and i knew he was probably responsible for like um halloween but i mean honestly like i think i might have i can't remember when i've mentioned this before but um I, I i i didn't ever get into horror because i didn't have anyone like ushering me into horror my dad was into sci-fi and i would see that but like uh, it wasn't like we would sit down to watch movies. It was kind of like he would be watching it, and I'd be like going through the room where I'd sit down for 20 minutes or something like that. But like my brother wasn't into horror, and that's sort of like a big thing as far as these these types of movies go. I I didn't ever have a friend who was like, you got to sit down and watch like Friday the 13th. I've never seen any uh, Friday the 13th or not a not not a Living Dead. Um, the Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I haven't seen any of those. Um, really. Yeah, I, wow. I think I've seen like uh, I've seen screen. I've seen like the first like three screams. Um, but like as far as those big franchises go, which I know that that's like a postmodern franchise. But um,
0: see, that's weird. That's interesting because like yeah, I mean it, it can help to have someone usher you through. But honestly, a lot of people, a lot of guys, boys end up watching horror movies because they're pretty likely to have naked chicks in them.
1: Well, as I That's tell true. a lot of as I tell a lot of people, I'm not like other
2: guys. This is this is a, that was an added bonus of Halloween, I guess, it did very much to uh, help inform uh, 11 year old jake tropila's sexuality so thank you john carpenter so
0: that's why you're always trying to put bed sheets over yourself yeah yeah that's, yeah
2: okay Case, cool not into it but um uh, i get a real kick I out of it that,
1: <laughs> i thought that was i thought that i thought you were just like uh really really taking your fandom for a ghost story up a notch
2: Oh, yeah, because, you know, I love that movie, and I, I cosplay it in my house when <laughs> yeah. nobody else is home, so I can act lonely and sad should, like the movie. Jake,
0: Jake, you want to do it properly, you should cosplay it in someone else's house.
2: That's true. <laughs>
0: I
1: should go
2: inside some uh, Hispanic. Hispanic neighbor and start smashing yeah. their dishes for him. Um,
1: okay, well, uh, I, I guess, like, throughout this, uh, what I'm going to task you guys with is um, I, I kind of want to, like, uh, have you guys talked to, like, so these are my first impressions and talk to me about sort of like, um, talk to me like I'm a five-year-old in that sense. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously not, uh, uh, a smart five-year-old, I should say. What is that um, scary wailing noise? <laughs> I don't know. There a, there probably a, maybe a, uh, there was a bus that just went by, but my windows closed. Anyway, um. But yeah, d- yeah uh, talk to me if, as someone who's not super informed on the genre and as somebody who's not like super uh, knowledgeable about John Carpenter. But um, I also just kind of want to talk about what John Carpenter, uh, what, what his sort of uh, persona is as a director as we go through. But um, OK, so uh, we're going to start with uh, Halloween. And I think, Jake, you wanted to take over on this one.
2: Yes, Halloween 1978. Um and, and first of all I should say, Sean, sh- shame on your father for being a sci-fi fan and never introducing <laughs> you to Dark Star,
1: John Carpenter's first film. So, <laughs> he, but, he uh, was more of a, I, I should specify, a sci-fi channel fan. Ah, uh, I see. I see. The, <laughs> I feel the like Dark S Y F Y channel. Yeah, I feel like Dark Star was that. Yeah. I'm sure. Right. But uh what what was it how was this it? it used to be uh S C I F I I think. Oh yeah, it totally did.
2: I don't know when they changed it. Uh, he really was
1: can. more of a sliders fan with Jerry Connolly. Hmm. Hmm.
2: Hmm. Okay. Anyways, uh yeah, Halloween, nineteen seventy-eight, my first uh foray into R-rated horror film and really the birth of the slasher picture, if you think about it, um we've had some sort of, some prototypes you could say with uh Hitchcock Psycho And uh, I argue that uh, Black Christmas from 1974 is a strong contender for the formula. But uh, with Halloween, very simply, John Carpenter really sets up a lot of uh, tropes and themes that are very common in horror films that we see today, Um, notably the slasher subgenre and setting up the there's this uh, homicidal maniac who's generally unkillable and there's a final girl and it's uh, it's fucking great. I hadn't seen it in years, and revisiting it uh, last week was like revisiting an old friend. I know it's a very hackneyed expression, but it really rang true. And I was sort of rediscovering yeah. the film all over again. And uh, there's a lot of pleasures to be taken away from it, and not just in the terms of like how violence is portrayed on the screen, but Really, the film is more about the threat of violence because Michael Myers is really lur- lurking around the frame uh, in almost every scene. And y- y- you get goosebumps just watching him stand across the street and stare at Jamie Lee Curtis. But yeah, Halloween is, is, a, is a tremendous effort in the horror genre and one that I highly regard to this day. Um, uh, yeah, that's, uh, those are my initial thoughts revisiting it. Um, what did you think of it, Sean?
1: Uh I liked it. I, I I liked it uh quite a bit. Um and that's all I have to say. No. Um <laughs> I all uh right,
0: moving on. Great. This <laughs> is gonna be quick.
1: Yeah. yeah, I have a train to catch. Um now uh I, I liked it and what I was taken this is a movie that that I would like to like see again probably even more than the others just because it it there's so much iconography and it's sort of like recognizing that more than just like going with the flow of the movie like I, I feel like now that I know what it is I could watch it and digest it differently um but I was really struck uh with um the the way like just the nuts and bolts with this more than um the others even of just like mechanics, just like mise-en-scene and just like framing and just these like, just like perfecting the nuts and bolts of like power, like framing power uh, in, in terms of like Michael Moore as this. Um, <laughs> uh, Michael Myers. <laughs> my, oh, it's funny. Uh, Showing up is... your
0: Republican side there with your greatest oh, no. fear being Michael Moore.
1: <laughs> well, I, I was also thinking of, um uh, what's that? bank robbery movie oh oh it's uh baby driver where they 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 uh say they're gonna come with michael myers mass
0: oh yes yeah oh. the one joke in hours
1: the, <laughs> the, one, the one gig yeah um anyway uh michael myers uh yeah so just like him as this threatening um but like some very like looming and lumbering um uh icon that that like you said it is just like kind of like uh, roving around the frame, but the way that he frames him, whether it's just like out the window or around a car or just like staring, um, I, I I thought that it was really slick. It's a it's a slick movie, um, and uh, I, I like that you brought up Psycho because uh, I think what I was taken with most here um, is the sexual. Uh, I don't. I, I, not really politics. I, I I suppose a little bit, but ju- just the way that um sex is like such a plot point in this movie um recurringly uh when we first see him you know he's uh murdering his sister when he's like a a young boy and she's like just had sex and um obviously in psycho which is yeah it's like the proto slash or whatever you know uh uh what's her name uh vivian lee janet lee um she, you know, she's like a sexually active person, uh woman and uh which was you know fairly uncommon in, in those films and to be so explicit and and she gets killed right away. Um and it it made me think of that. And uh it also um just how sex plays a role in this movie throughout, it kind of reminded me, um so the first thing I think that I wrote, first or second thing I ever wrote for uh Optimism Vaccine, actually like five years ago. Um don't go back and read it because it's probably embarrassing. But uh, it was it was like in a response to to watching um, I think it was like the second or maybe the third Transformers movie, um, and there's a point where Shia LaBeouf is like with his new girlfriend, or I think yeah I think it's just girlfriend, and they're like about to have sex, and then like the stupid small uh, uh, alien robot things like come in and like interrupt them. And they never get back to that situation where they're, like, alone together and, and romantically uh, uh, involved. And then once he, like, defeats the evil robots and saves the world, at the very end of the movie, he, like, proposes to her. And uh, that is sort of how sex works in that movie. And I noticed that it was kind of like uh, – it, it's it's a very common thing in, like, sort of this um, – hollywood uh like very like christian uh politics very like uh once the pur- puritanical way that that we get to see sex in hollywood movies which is um you know like uh sex before marriage is not really uh is it's looked down upon and then you know once that you uh once this action hero has sort of saved the day then then he does the proper thing um by getting married and then they Presumably have sex after that um, And I thought about I, th- I thought about like that like looming uh, Christian Ethos uh, Over this movie but but it seemed to be Less um, Less of a symptom And more of a actual plot Point where uh, he um, Michael Myers um, Not more um, Where he sort of at times Actually symbolizes that that Sort of like Panopticon of that Christian value um, if that makes sense, like he is this threat that something's going to happen if we are sexually active before marriage
2: well, a, yeah very yeah. great way of saying it yeah, pre oh, premarital sex will get you killed go ahead jack
0: yeah well it's it's it's, it's interesting actually because um you say Sean you haven't watched a lot of um you haven't watched a lot of slasher movies and Definitely this is as Jake says, this is I think really the maybe not the first slasher movie, but really the, the movie that packaged everything together for an American motion picture as like packaged it as a product. It put everything it, this is pretty much the movie that kind of set up everything, all the pieces are in place that so this is that you can package this and just release them at nauseum. And that's exactly what happened. The nineteen eighties was just direct to video, just Slasher movie upon slasher movie, and um, the sexual politics demonstrated here. The this is like one of the most high-minded slasher movies on that front of any of them. It only goes downhill from here, unfortunately, and it didn't take long to go further downhill. But it's 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 interesting to me because what what really struck me about uh, Halloween, as opposed to so many of the other slasher movies that came in its wake, even even at the top, even you know Friday the Thirteenth. Which came only a couple of years later and really kind of opened it up to the even gorier size of it because Halloween was the late 70s and was still really reasonably tame um, on the violent side of things and even on the sex side of things too. But um, it's kind of like the people in Halloween, the teenagers, are so. They're pretty well characters and they're kind of fun and they have sex, but it's not like. I feel like the film's nowhere near as puritanical as subsequent. Films. There's, I feel like there's almost, in, in Carpenter's way that he is, camera prowls around. It's almost like this is all a symptom of suburbia rather than sex. Um, I mean, the closing shots are of houses and just like kind of static frames of, of different homes and so, an idyllic suburban iconography, you know, picket fences and porches with their lights on and, you know, kind of warm and welcoming. And then this terrible thing happened here. And there's this idea this weird violation of an idyllic space. And. Um, so like, what's, and isn't
1: what's, there also like a house that that uh you know doesn't really fit in with that that image?
2: The Myers house, yeah. The it has, Myers house, has,
1: yes.
0: The house of the digits. history. Yeah, yeah. And so, see, I, I mean, there's various readings you put into it, but what struck me about the film, watching it this time, really, is just how. How well rounded the three, the three female characters. Right, really the guys outside of Michael Meyer and Donald Pleasance playing literally the worst psychologist in the world. <laughs> um, he is just—he should not have his job. If you think your patient is pure evil, you shouldn't be dispensing yeah. psychiatric advice. If you were packing a gun and you just want to kill your patient, you should not be uh, in a, in a kind of position of power. But leaving that aside, he's pretty much the only you know, one of the only men in the film, it's really, it's driven by three girls who are basically looking to get laid. You know, they're, they're just, and it's not like anything particularly perverse. They're just teenagers looking for fun on Halloween night. It's, you know, it's silly. It's goofy. It's why not? And they're really, honestly, they're, they're all kind of fun characters. Jamie Lee Curtis is certainly, she's the most reserved. She's the, the least partyish and sexually promiscuous of them. and. Um, mm-hmm. And but her friends are mostly fine with that. They poke fun at her, but it's not like there's this any kind of you know great hire between them about it. It's just they have different goals at this juncture. You know they have boyfriends, she doesn't, etc., etc. Mm. So it's it's to me it's it's something that struck shone through in the film is how a slasher movies go, it's almost sex positive, at least sex neutral, right? Um, you know because I feel like the the overriding element of it is that Mike Myers is Mike Myers is damaged and is a damaged <laughs> presence, but He's not. He's. He doesn't work as a as a moral force. You know, in my view, right, he doesn't. right. He doesn't, he doesn't. He's not exacting kind of a of vengeance against really nasty people because, like, subsequently, it didn't take long. on Friday the Thirteenth, and so on. That you had the jocks and the assholes and the the oh. whore and these archetypal characters oh. that then where you you know where you were gunning for them to die. You were like, you know, I can't wait to see this person like get it. Yeah,
1: you know? that's and really this movie interesting. Doesn't
0: have one. This you know Halloween doesn't have that character. There's no character that you're like, man, I hope they get it real soon. Other than maybe Donald Pleasance because he's just a terrible, terrible psychiatrist.
1: Yeah that, that, that's I, I i really like that um and it makes me want to rewatch it again already but like yeah i think that's also what has turned me off sometimes from further exploring horror is like there's always these these really easy easy tropes i mean there are tropes and then they're really easily um sort of used or or uh, taken, oh, yeah. no, so taken much, advantage so much, of
0: so much horror cinema is, is like it's it's like raunchiness combined with the deranged ramblings of an 80 year old conservative person just telling you that such such there is ruining it things weren't like that back in the day
2: also helps that the three lead girls not only are they do they feel like credible characters but they all give very different and almost nuanced performances and that's something that you don't get in horror movies these days i mean horror movie actors the caliber has just gone down the hill so yeah. far you get, you going like, to you're gonna claim that
0: you're gonna claim the boy, boy man wasn't staffed with
1: top tier young talent
2: <laughs> no i'm not saying uh, they should have
1: tried harder but they probably should have tried harder i, I mean <laughs> I, I i just watched um night of the <laughs> living dead again uh last week yeah. and that's one where the, uh, i mean it, it's I, I, you guys both talk about how like uh quickly that they go down hill but like they also didn't start very good as as far as these ingenues in, well, in yeah. That,
0: to be fair to Night of the Living Dead that was uh, that's basically like a, a non-professional yeah. yeah just a cut over high school theater I mean sure, <laughs> sure, sure. pretty much
1: but, the lead uh, actor is the
0: only guy who you know had a career in that
1: right but that is like a certain archetype I guess but uh, I feel like Jamie Lee Curtis really does like crystallize that but um, uh, going back to like sort of like uh, the the scope of of these friends and how there isn't like these easy like jocks and and I, like I, I think that's uh, something that really pisses me off about movies in general really quickly it's like sort of a pet peeve is when you like and we see this a lot in in easy um, comic book movie adaptations like you you know exactly who they want you to root for and who they don't want you to root for and to be able to do something interesting without Um, without even caring, like just eschewing those things, uh, all together and just exploring an area that, that feels more, uh, lived in is, and more realistic, um, in that way really helps a movie like Halloween. Um, and that kind of like, uh, again, goes back to the nuts and bolts of just like using these, using these like primitive tropes and setups, uh, or, or maybe even creating them. Um, but I mean, obviously horror existed, but using horror tropes um, that had pre-existed and just like doing them really well without like these shortcuts. Um, yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, I suppose it's in talking about kind of the the
0: genesis of Halloween. Um, there, there are certain touch points to it, and the kind of the, the way this developed. I think that there's there's two things at play here. There, there's a, there's a few elements at play. Firstly, I, I, it's kind of The the through-blind of 70s counterculture cinema was really, with the opening of, you know, with the the Hayes production code collapsed at the end of the 60s, so you started seeing Hollywood films that were able to have swearing and nudity and violence and discussion of
1: just, you know, regular... Commons and Kevin, it, was, it yeah, was Kevin Costner broke that sign right like in the late 60s that's right
0: yeah he took down he took down the the bathroom sign and races racism and
1: he collapsed went, in on itself and, and then but he then he the also haze moved code. over yeah then he also right, went, he went to Hollywood <laughs> found the haze code and <laughs> yeah, smashed
0: the haze code <laughs> he smashed the haze code he was like oh my god uh, interracial marriages are cool now because I just tore up the wedding licenses and um <laughs> yeah so so you had this this kind of a. Uh, 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 kind of allowing of hollywood to broach new territory and of course it kicked off a whole counterculture in american cinema through the 70s and a lot of that was you know your grindhouse films which were really films that were you know made real cheap and were basically just blood and sex and you know they ran in drive-ins and they were really sleazy and cheap and ridiculous but they did kind of build and generate a kind of an idea of violence as a Kind of pernicious random actor. They they kind of they removed the moralist veneer of of Hollywood. They really bucked against it, the idea that I mean part of the Hays Code was that you know crime criminals couldn't benefit and there was a, you know the, the world had an order and a structure and a and a justice and films had to reflect that. The the seventies completely reversed that trend and. I suppose Halloween follows in the line of other films in that Michael Myers is basically a, a kind of a, a random destructive force. The, the people he's chasing and killing are not people who are deserving of his ire. They're just people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and that's you know some people will read that as it, it started out as a reaction, you know, counter kind of reaction to, to Vietnam and so on. You know, you, there's there books have been written on this, but I think that's that's one of the interesting elements to these kind of films is that they they remove that element of uh, a moral order. It's just, it's basically a question of bad luck that, that puts you, you know, puts an innocent sure. person in, in, in a position of danger. Um. Huh. so, yeah, I, you know, and, and then I think also of the, the stuff that like predates this and I, I'm thinking of particularly films like Peeping Tom and uh psycho and particularly i think also deep red and uh, the argento movie in that these yeah. and uh, there's no question in my mind john carpenter saw deep red when it first played right. it just well i it. just
1: watched that too and it was like it was really interesting to watch these two within like a week of each other
0: yeah the first scenes alone set up so much i mean this kind of quasi freudian kind of internal monologue with the with the, the bad guy who obviously you know doesn't really Talk a lot in Halloween doesn't talk at all, pretty much. <laughs> but this kind of idea of I don't know, like sex and and violence meshing in a young mind and just completely destroying someone from the very forever, basically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so there were these these elements combined into Halloween, and I think it makes it makes Halloween. It's it's kind of like all the parts of it fit very naturally. I think because he was cribbing from structures that had already kind of been put in place by previous films. Um, and then what he really inserted was this very slick kind of a production that John Carpenter is very much, a, John Carpenter is an artist in so far as that he is very good at getting, like he knows the the language of cinema very well. He's a very good uh, kind of pictorial filmmaker and he understands what he can do and what he can't do and he kind of works very well with what he has. And I mean, his first few films are incredibly low budget uh, and mm-hmm. he he stretches them very very far, I mean it's all precinct thirteen and Halloween are super low budget productions relatively, but they both made did very well at the box office so and uh, Dark star obviously is uh they didn't have any money for that
2: <laughs> no, they did not well,
1: that's a good uh that's a good segue to something I wanted to say and also uh our next movie on the list but um so I, I said I I, uh, I I teased that I had story time, uh, and what I meant was uh, I wanted to do like a quick reading um, that uh, sort of uh, yeah it speaks for itself. But um, it's from uh, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Have you guys read this before? The Carol Clover book?
0: I've not. I've heard of it though. I know it's it's
2: highly regarded. I have not read it either.
1: Yeah, it's re- it's it's really great. Um, I've. I've probably read only like half of it, um, this year, but it's really cool. Uh, but, uh, so to set up, um, since I was watching these and I kind of wanted to like read because I, like, I knew that I wasn't getting like, you know, whatever the, the, the breadth of what his work means just by watching them one time. And, uh, so I actually, uh, I reached out to, um, to the host of uh, another podcast, uh, Sean Witzke of Travis Bickle on the Riviera, because I knew that he was a huge fan, and he suggested a book uh, by I think it's called like Prince of Darkness or something by like Gillies BooLinger, but that book is like out of print or something and really expensive, and I wasn't going to spend like whatever seventy bucks on a John Carpenter book. Well, you um, just you
0: just let your audience know how much their their value is worth. Yeah, true,
1: true. Uh, and, uh, I can, at the end of the program, I'll, I'll, I'll say what my Venmo is and you guys can show me what I'm worth to you. Um, but, uh, no, anyway, I, I was disappointed cause I couldn't get that book. Um, cause it was, it was just expensive and also it probably wouldn't have even shipped here before I needed it. But, um, so I, I. Figured that they talked about it in this book so I went to this but also I saw that there's another book that sort of like popped up on Amazon and it was just called like John Carpenter or the films of John Carpenter something really a uh, basic like that and it has like a blue cover I can't remember who wrote it but I downloaded that and uh, I tried reading the intro and it's it was really bad um, it looked like a you know a scholarly book and uh, it it was like reading um first of all I, I think when you when you when you pick up a book like this and you look at this the table of contents you kind of want like sort of titles that are specific and and you know sometimes you know from various authors but you know you know something like halloween and gender in the slasher film you know not just like halloween 1 um and that was kind of like oh that's not that's a bad sign but not terrible and then i started reading the intro and it was kind of like you know when you're writing like a book report and you you just like need to squeeze out like words that you don't care about or don't have so you just like expound upon stuff and the most like basic stuff not now but in high school or something like that you just like sort of like write these sentences for the for the word count um It was a lot like that where it was just somebody talking about John Carpenter as like this auteur, but not really talking about why. Just kind of talking about like uncompromising uh, maker of movies who uh, is good at making the movies that that I like to watch, too. And um, that kind of. The kind of thing where you're just like, okay, this is this is nothing interesting to you to know tell what me.
0: I, I mean, you say that, but I mean I've never I've never really thought about it like that before.
1: <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, it, basically, it just like it didn't have anything like on a broader. Social level uh, So I went looking at Men, Women, Chainsaws And it was funny because Since the that book kind of was like He's this auteur uh, this, was, this is from I think the intro Or one of the first chapters in Men, Women, Chainsaws um, It says uh, The art Of the horror film Like the art of pornography Is to a very large extent The art of rendition or performance And it is understood as such by the competent audience A particular example may have original features but its quality as a horror film lies in the way it delivers the cliche and then it has this quote from this other author uh, where he says uh you search for what is stable and repeated You, you neglect what is artistic and original in quotes this is why for me auteur criticism is quite beside the point in explaining horror the critic's job The critics first job in explaining the fascination of horror is not to fix the images at their very appearance, but instead to trace their migrations to the audience and only then try to understand why they have been crucial enough to pass along. Okay, and then it goes back, says the auteur criticism is at least partly beside the point is clear from interviews with such figures as John Carpenter interviews, which would seem to suggest that the purveyors of folklore, the makers of film operate more on instinct and formula than conscious understanding, so bewildered so bewildered was Hitchcock by the unprecedented success of psycho that he approached the Stanford Research Institute about doing a study on the phenomenon. What makes crucial what makes horror crucial enough to pass along is for critics since Freud what has made ghost stories and fairy tales crucial enough to pass along it's engagement. Of repressed fears and desires, and its reenactment of the residual conflicts surrounding those feelings, horror films thus respond to interpretation, as Robin Wood put it, once put it as at once the personal dramas or sorry at once the personal dreams of their makers and the collective dreams of their audience. The fusion made possible by the shared structures of a common ideology. And just as attacker and attacked are expressions of the same self in nightmares. So they are expressions of the same viewer in horror film. We are both the red riding hood and the wolf. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, uh, this book that I kind of started to read was like, tease this on tour. And then, uh, the first thing I read about John Carpenter in this book, which makes a lot more sense to me and sort of fits with how I like to think about movies is that, uh, horror films are all about the audience and um, someone might be like, well, why are we, why are you talking about John Carpenter uh, uh, then on this podcast? Uh, Obviously he was able to basically um, my point about nuts and bolts is he was able to know the genre uh, really well and use those, use those to his advantage um, more than his own vision or whatever. But uh, it's really interesting to think about these horror movies as, as, you know, what's important is specifically with, like, scares and, and whatever, the, the horrors, um, is how the audience reacts to them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the genre film, part like part of what is attractive to genre and what's interesting in genre is the concept of a, a kind of, like, say, a preset space and a preset rope that people move within. And what distinguishes a good horror film or a good horror film director from a bad one is that they are able to invest – familiar with something new or with something surprising Carpenter did it but a part of what Carpenter did so well was he beat the curve he was he was before there sure. were a thousand genre or a thousand slasher movies he made Halloween and everyone was copying him and sure he was standing on Argento on Mario Bava on you know a few others on Hitchcock but you know he really like I say that Halloween was like signed and sealed your your slasher movies like this is this is how you do it if you if anyone wants to do it and everyone did uh, right up to you know the 1980s i mean friday the 13th and the burning and uh, i mean jamie lee curtis alone from starring in in halloween excuse me in, in 1978 in 1980 she was in terror train and prom night to you know two very early first generation kind of american slasher movies
1: yeah og's and, dream queen terror yeah, Night pretty, pretty much. and prom night what's the difference
0: terror train One's on a train, Sean. The other one's on prom night, and it's a disco slasher, which is a real uh, thing.
1: I'll tell you what, though. My prom night was a real, real terror train.
0: (laughs) Okay, wow. So a lot of people died, I take it. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I I think that that's that's part of what's interesting. That's one of the reasons I love, you know, like a lot of the – because I feel like the – the, the slasher movie in particular really goes back to a lot of Italian cinema and it goes back to the giallo, which was kind of pushed by Dario Argento, but was invented by Mario Bava or, you know, it, in, as much as these things can be invented. And I do feel that Mario Bava pretty much invented the slasher as well with Bay of Blood, which came, I think, 1971, I think was when he made that movie, which is literally mm. just a, a parade of violence. Um, with almost no storyline hanging together. It's just a series of murders involving, like, and teenagers show up and stuff. But it's invested with... It. When he did it, part of what made it so surprising, like, there weren't that many films like that. But then as the Jalo and stuff developed, it was the idea of, yeah, it's a murder. You've seen murders before in movies, but you've never seen one quite like this one because the camera and the music and the set design is something that's going to be really surprising. And the first generation of American slasher movies had that. I mean, I think... Carpenter was defined by an excellent, like, say, pictorial sense. His films have a very clean, natural progression of images. They're very, very easy to digest. Mm -hmm. Other films, like I'm thinking Terror Train, for example, which is another pretty solid slasher movie, has this great kind of cinematography, a great play of shadow and light uh, in enclosed spaces. It's it's an interesting looking film. Friday the 13th has um, Kevin Bacon. So, you know, there's, there's various <laughs> things that might like,
1: distinguish well, these movies. Speaking, speaking yeah. of Kevin Bacon, the nice thing about Halloween is that there's no fat uh
0: <laughs> there is, oh, no it's good 90 minutes and done that was pretty good that
1: that <laughs> yeah. but but seriously up. uh it it really is just like really slim and um uh, also we should move on but i will say i almost forgot that the score is so good like this is you oh, know yeah. like, oh, yeah. an, oh, yeah. a, iconic score and um it's probably you, his best had you heard it before the movie Yeah. And
2: finally able to oh okay that's where yeah where.
1: but be able to contextualize it was was another thing uh that was yeah. great Anyway, anyway just to, okay
2: just to finish huh? up halloween i wanted to add real quick that i mean you mentioned all these directors like bava and argento but i think the wonder of john carpenter is that he made horror a mainstream thing because all yes. these awful sleazy slasher films people were seeing in the 70s and they weren't quite as accessible to audiences and this well, is no. where this is where horror became a genre it's true. but, but then again
0: I, I would argue part of that as well was that Carpenter was homegrown. He was American. He was it was, sure. it was with it was internal. The others had to be imported. They were suffered. i um, Bay of Blood. I mean, was edited and stuff as part of the whatever. I can't remember the name of the, the great studio There was in one of these uh, American studios. I mean, all they did was they shot films abroad, brought them in. Uh, co-produce them cut them to ribbons recut them although what they did do for a bay of blood was they gave it the title in america of twitch of the death nerve and i have no (laughs) idea why anyone would use any other title if that was on the table i would never like it's it's called other stuff that is that is one of the best names
1: seeing uh seeing uh deep red uh also um that like and uh suspiria like those are um luxurious movies uh they're excessive um and halloween is 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 not and um I, it seems like john carpenter uh as far as like his persona as a as a director is so blue collar and that goes into like what jake's mm-hmm. saying is like just like very mainstream oh
0: absolutely. Okay. so if, if, uh, if deep red is if deep red is opera then uh, halloween is like a good punk song
1: exactly um yeah so uh Jack, I believe you are going to introduce the next movie.
0: I am. So, so we're going to fast forward two years. Keep on. We're we're keeping on on horror, just generally, because why not? Um, for Halloween as it is. Um, so Carpenter worked in between this. He made um like an Elvis movie, which is I believe where he first met Kurt Russell, who had gone oh, right for many many years. Um, but the next movie we're going to talk about is The Fog, which came in 1980 and was again another. Another horror movie, again, a film with a very simple premise, a very streamlined production. Um, it was Elvis a TV movie? It was originally made for TV, yes, I believe. Uh, I, I, found out,
1: mm-hmm. I, I found out today that uh, TV movies back then, um, Only Duel was uh, a good example of, oh. of a movie on TV. Everything else was bad. It's legendary. It's one of Spielberg's best. <laughs> um yes. that's breaking news from one of our uh finest publications uh <laughs> anyway uh yes. go ahead
0: so the fog is um was basically i it was carpenter's horror follow-up after halloween kind of broke in the mold i mean halloween was a, a runaway success kind of proved there was uh plenty plenty to go on so carpenter came back with um with the fog, which kind of changed things around. It's a ghost story. It has a, an explicit supernatural element, which Halloween kind of hinted at just a little bit with the conclusion when they kill Michael Myers, uh, yeah. but he's not dead. And there's kind of a sense again of this. Uh, like I say, I feel there's a sense of that Michael Myers is more of a. He's kind of presented as some kind of deranged, yeah, kind of uh, side effect of of civilization or whatever, you know, of suburbia mm-hmm. of. Um, So, you know, there's kind of elements in it. And then by Halloween 5, it became explicitly supernatural because they were just trying to figure out ways to get uh, Michael Myers back on the set, you know, or back into each film. But um, The Fog is explicitly supernatural, very straightforward film, basically, basically just about a seaside community in picturesque Northern California. And a fog rolls in, and there's killer ghost pirates in the fog. Um, and it turns out the reason there are killer ghost pirates is because the town was founded on crime against those pirates, and they want revenge. Which is an interesting premise. I think I think we're we're all probably agreed that the fog is maybe the weakest of the films we're going to be discussing. It's a little a little thin, um, but I actually I still quite like, and I still think it it, it in that theme within it of. Uh, of the idea of a, of a a model of civilization predicated on something barbarous and cruel, in which case they, they double-crossed a pirate because they held him in low esteem because he was a pirate. He was a criminal, so they tricked him and murdered him and stole all his stuff and used the money to buy a town charter and set up this town. And then 100 years later, the pirate comes back So this interesting idea of civilization again being and social order being something of an illusion something that masks a darker uh darker interior um but the film itself is i i admit it's uh my attention wanders a few points in it i would say and it's not necessarily mm. an insult but i think the first 15 minutes the fog is the best part of the movie it's got this brilliant mm-hmm. slow burn opener air where the fog is rolling in and, and it's just very slowly building with sound effects and with just kind of these, these different static camera angles. You start to see things breaking, you know, car alarms go off, a window breaks, a clock runs funny, you know, it's just, it's, it's like really this great slow build into it. And in the film, it's kind of like, Oh, ghost pirates. Okay, cool.
2: (laughs) You know, just shows that carbon is really a master of atmosphere. I mean, you can give you, you can give you the bare minimum, but you're still getting something out of him. Um, I I of uh, the films we watched this I this was my first time seeing the fog and I was I was oh wow I thought I thought yeah I thought it was uh is certainly the weakest of the four films and I was really disappointed because I was actually expecting it to be a sentient fog that killed people um, yeah me too not sure not sure why but uh, yeah, that
0: kind of came back with an oil slick in one of the creep show movies but uh, <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> I think I'm it starts sure out like that uh, I've seen a movie with the flag. oh no no that's Vampire Hunter D oh uh,
1: no you're thinking of the
0: happening. That happening that's, no um, well, you know yeah. that's the, k-
2: scent, the air the air is killing
1: people um yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, no well, in vampire hunter d in the old 80s anime film there is actually a creature that's basically just a flesh-eating fog and it envelops people and then they just dissolve so jake <laughs> that's probably what you're looking for <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, i
1: will check that publication out
0: that's it's, it's um, a movie. they made a movie of it
1: yeah um I, uh, it, it does start, uh, sort of like hinting or kind of like, uh, I thought it was, it was, it was going to be like sort of this enveloping fog. Um, and,
2: uh, I thought it was going to be like a, like a, almost like Halloween, like an up all night movie where people are dealing with this situation, but it's, it like, it kind of. To me, it really torpedoes its momentum when it, it goes to the next day, and then we have to wait until the next evening for the fog to roll back into town. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: it's kind of like, oh, if there's no fog, there's not really a problem here, is there? Everyone yeah. could just leave if they wanted to. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, and, it, and it's kind of, it's a weird setup. We have Jane, Jamie Lee Curtis returns as uh, kind of a drifter passing through. Um, JLC? Yeah. So and and then we have Adrienne Barbeau has a major role in this film, and she's kind of her own horror movie icon. I mean, she she worked with Carpenter. She was in Romero's Creepshow. She was yeah. yeah she's, she's a the DJ. shock jock. The shock jock. Yeah. And she was in she was in Wes Craven's Swamp Thing as well, among others. So she's like her her horror credentials are are pretty well established. So yeah, kind of that that
2: name is Danielle Stern.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's. Wait, that's her name in the movie? No, I made that up. I don't Oh, okay. I was I was <laughs> like that would be great. Uh yeah. So um, it, 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 that reminded me her her role uh reminded me also of Night of the Living Dead because of this this broadcast angle which I was really taken with uh watching Night of the Living Dead this time is is how smart it was to have this this central broadcast this sort of like universal uh ma- making them the movie more universal than than just this singular like city or happening or whatever uh very like sort of wet, uh, uh war of the worlds type of thing but just like having her her voice there to broadcast um i like that it has this this uh imagined community feel where you sort of like it, you have a better feeling for the city um yeah, it's, it's, it's just an easy trick.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting because it is she she's able to communicate with with the entire town via the, via her honestly luxurious radio. <laughs> yes. uh, broadcasting to so and a lighthouse it's out like sleepless in, in
1: Seattle in there.
0: Yeah, no, I, like you, people would kill for that kind of work work environment. But um, it's it's interesting. <laughs> she communicates to the entire populace in that sense of community of everyone knows her and and so on. But uh, it's about a community basically falling apart because it's built on a lie. Uh, so there's kind of an interesting yeah. uh, subversiveness to that. I think.
1: Yeah, I like what's behind this movie. Um, I like uh, that you know uh, the movie's playing on this uh, historic. Or this like history of of violence, uh, no pun intended, that were that were built in. It kind of reminds me of The Shining, um, and how uh that sort of like allegory in The Shining that uh they're what on an Indian burial ground or whatever, and that that seems to be where this violence is coming from or coming through.
0: Well, yeah, a similar idea, I guess, of a. Um Murder, right? Much okay. different they,
1: manifestation. Yeah, the,
0: the concept. I mean, underwritten, but be underneath it. I mean, you could you could take it as kind of an economic reading that it's basically, um, ironically, upstanding, civilized members of of what of society who don't actually have money but would consider themselves to be the moneyed class because they're just you know they present themselves as such, steal money off a pirate, and <laughs> then use that money to become the moneyed class that they've previously huh. envisioned themselves to be which is kind of an unusual quirk, although I have to admit I have a bit of a, a qualm with it. I don't know if any, maybe I wasn't watching it closely enough this time, but um, they steal the gold to buy a city charter, but then they melt the gold down to make a cross, which the priest takes out later on. So I'm not right. quite sure, was there extra gold? I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that works. Yeah, but my at, first mind around. I was thing.
1: a little fuzzy on that.
0: Yeah, it's it's a bit odd, but um, the the other thing that I thought was interesting within this film is just, um, like, if I take another theme from it, it's one of the things that struck me, and it's not really something that's really mentioned throughout the film, per se, so the ghosts come back, and the ghosts have, I must say, uh, as pernicious, violent, supernatural actors, they have an incredibly balanced sense of justice, they literally just want to kill one guy who's the ancestor of the person who wronged them 100 years ago, and they just want their money back.
1: And is that what, priest. uh, is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's into the wild, uh, Hal Holbrook.
0: Hell, uh, yes, indeed. Yes. But a few years earlier here. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's, <and laughs> it's kind of interesting. Because, yeah. And so, the, so they take him in and it's the priest finds out that he's the ancestor of the man who double cross his pirates. The priest is innocent. He's, he's a good priest by all accounts within the film, but, and he's a godly man. He's a good man and he's a priest. He's, and he does all the right things throughout the entire film. Um and yet his God, his faith, um and his goodness offers him no protection when the pirates come in on him at the end. I thought that was kind of an interesting element yeah. too it, that it's a film, it's a city that's it's a civilization built on barbarism and God and ho and righteousness and morality offer no shield against past sins. So I thought that was kind of an interesting reading and in that way the fog is really darker than I remember it being. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what people appreciate from uh about Carpenter, at least that's what I've heard uh from other people is 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 that sort of um that using a, using horror to explore something that that is like actually really dark and real. <laughs>
0: yep oh no, that's my cat opening a door. don't
1: worry that's nah. pretty cool. all right well uh maybe um we should take that that opening of a door uh from, just to, from well just to, just to
2: i mean I, I wanted to mention that the fog feels more like a first feature film than Halloween yeah. does um For sure. which, is, which is really odd because it came four years after, and it's also yeah, it already made it's also films. Yeah, he made several films, and it's also, it's it's peppered with a lot of uh, references to um, people uh, like T- Tom Atkins, who himself is a staple of the horror genre at that time. He plays a character named Nick Castle, who is the name of the actor who played The Shape in Halloween. And uh, there's also the that neighbor that gets killed is played by the late, great Dan O'Bannon, um, right. who's a friend of uh, Carpenter's, writer of, uh, of Dark Star and uh yeah and there's there's one more and one of course friend of your your a friend of a pod friend of a friend <laughs> yeah
0: by by extension there's also they name drop a uh, carpenter's band the coupe devils as one of the early radio broadcasts they they mentioned that there have got a single from them coming up which yeah. uh if you if you've yeah. never checked out the big trouble in little china music video the coupe devils dropped uh do so and overdose on 80s
2: yeah, that big Trouble in Little China theme is amazing. It, like, I'll just pop on the Blu ray menu and listen to it. Well, over,
1: over that's again. not what we're talking about on this podcast. No, one more we thing. We can
2: change. The lead, the lead ghost in uh, The Fog is played by Rob Botton, who most famously would go on to do the special effects for The Thing. And here we go. You guys are- <laughs> oh,
0: there. He just handed that to you, Sean. That's what the right. you've been doing.
1: That's right. <laughs> I was uh, going to sneak in another comment, but I will not because that was a good uh, – I'll concede. All
2: right. So the thing – I consider the thing to be Carpenter's magnum opus, and if you, whether or not you agree with me or think that's heresy, I don't care. I think this film is fucking magnificent, and um, it was one I discovered a few years after I originally watched Halloween. I think I was like 14 when I saw the thing, and uh, this film blew my mind then, and it still holds up today. But yeah, the thing tackles uh like masculinity and survival and focuses on this tight knit group of workers, these blue collar guys who are in a in a remote Antarctica base in an alien life form, starts picking them off and assimilating them one by one. And uh yeah. I think this is Carpenter firing at all cylinders.
1: And people say uh remakes aren't good. Um Actually, well, on that, they're,
2: they're right. If you're referring to the a, Mary Elizabeth Winstead film,
1: no, <laughs> uh, no, I mean uh, this as as a remake of the '50s, uh, the well, yeah. uh, thing. But yeah, they're um, very
0: I, different in tone.
1: <laughs> and actually, on that note, I was going to bring up a fun fact uh, that um, Carpenter has said. Uh, he said this on like the making of the thing um, that the original thing had. Some women in the cast and he didn't really like he wasn't good at articulating why he didn't want to do that uh why why he just wanted to have uh only men he he said something like i i just didn't want to like uh have that be an issue I didn't know if he if he just didn't want to um have like loaded i guess ideas about this this secluded group of men and women anyway he was like i you know I hadn't seen a movie with uh only men in a while uh and and what movies uh, had been watching <laughs> <laughs> yeah true i think he meant like uh, exclu- or like secluded somewhere just like these men uh uh together but anyway gardens
0: uh, of arabia on repeat he was
1: like <laughs> he was like i i wanted to make one and so the moral of the story is the thing is the original uh all male reboot
0: hmm. um yeah maybe um <laughs> I don't know. You can I'll look into to,
2: that I'll have to check my facts on that
1: And I bet that uh, uh, If the Alamo Draft House had existed uh, In this point in time Then they would have had an all-male showing oh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what, if, what if they get an all-thing showing Oh, like, inter, like intergalactic beings coming together to assimilate in one theater.
0: They've, they've just got a red hot wire, and you have to give in a sample of your blood at the the box office. <laughs> that's that's check right. That's right. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I
0: mean, Carpenter's. It, it's interesting you mention that because Carpenter, like, Carpenter not wanting women in it. And there's, there's a claustrophobia and a kind of a construction, a masculine construction of the film. So it makes sense that he zeroed in on that. Carpenter's not exactly, yeah. generally speaking, a great. Uh, filmmaker about women, his characters are not it's it's in it, Halloween has a couple of interesting elements to it. There's like there's mm-hmm. there's at least one scene in it where, where Michael Myers is cruising past in the car and one of the girls like and he's like cruising past rubbernecking like a creepy douchebag guy. They don't know he's a murderer at the time. And one of the girls shouts at him and the other girls yeah. shout at her. Like Speed for kills, Yeah, for for basically endangering them by interacting with a toxic male asshole who basically looks like he's just like peering at them while driving past slowly, and that's kind of, that's a really interesting in in Halloween because that's actually probably one of the most of the real terror of the film or one of the most actually identifiable scares in the whole movie is the concept oh, sure. of just being out on your own having some guy just cruise past, and for women that's going to be a much more a much more resonating trigger. And as a guy, I, I watched that for many, many years, and it never even occurred to me because, you know, no one, apparently no one checks me out in public,
2: whatever. <laughs> I don't need it. So <laughs> <laughs> It's worth so, noting there is a, there is one female character in uh, The Thing, and it's the voice on MacReady's computer where he proceeds to call her, after he loses a game of chess in circa 1982, he proceeds to call her a cheating bitch and then pours his drink into the machine. Oh, yeah. and yeah. it. I, I yeah, actually
1: took the, note of that. Cause, that's cause the that's, opening too, right? That, yeah, that's so
2: the, our yeah. hero. The first scene with, uh, yeah, our hero. <laughs> yeah, Which I mean, is that's interesting...
0: our, our, hero is, our, intro,
2: our hero is introduced basically
0: blowing up a computer because it beat him at a game of chess. Like, this is, this, and this is the pinnacle of humanity in the thing.
1: It's a very cynical and, and film. Uh, you
2: can't
0: take that away.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, and it's also, it sort of sets up the movie, like, the, this this dynamic of of him losing at something that he doesn't understand. Um, which I guess you could read into the end if you really wanted to, but whether or not uh, that has any bearing on the ending, just like that, it sort of sets him up as, as this guy who doesn't really understand and is losing at whatever game is being played with him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it sets an emotional element within the film because well, I, I know that one of the things that John Carpenter talked about later on that he was playing with was the idea that if the thing, this alien is able to completely take up Take over people at a molecular level, then it could theoretically emulate all their memories and their thoughts as it completely, perfectly replicates their brain to the point that when it takes over someone where, where it basically kills someone and becomes that person, that that person doesn't know that they're not still the person they used to be. Right. Um, which is one of the interesting creeping paranoia of it is this kind of idea of losing yourself without even realizing it, of being subsumed uh, without even knowing. Um, but what's interesting within the film is, I mean, it, it's kind of like the idea of hell as other people extrapolate to its extremes in this film, where basically, I mean, th- with the introduction to the guys, they're they're all very blue collar. They're also all just not that nice. They're like. Kurt Russell's character, like, blows up a computer because he's pissed off at it because he's possibly drunk and just, you know, a sore loser. There's a guy playing loud music who won't turn it down while someone else is trying to do something. There's just casual racism against that guy for not turning it down, and he's, like, the mm-hmm. only African-American character, well, one of two I think African-American characters. Um, yeah, you know, the whole film is just kind of like, like all the guys are kind of assholes going stir-crazy, and then this monster comes in and basically they all go even crazier and at certain points don't even realize they're not even there anymore
1: yeah it it does uh, and especially you saying like hell is other people uh, specifically makes me think of um, existentialist literature and how this movie seems to uh, just it's just built on a lot of those tenets of existentialist literature um, you know being around people that uh, well, also losing your own identity, but being around people uh, that you can't trust uh, or that nobody trusts each other.
0: Yeah. It's, and it's telling that this would go on to become the first part in a kind of unofficial apocalyptic trilogy that John Carpenter made with In the Mouth of Madness and uh, Prince of Darkness, which yeah. were like his other two films that uh, they kind of, and they, they don't have any story overlap. They're basically all films that hint at. The world ending and certainly the thing has a very vague hint of that because we have survivors mm. but this the ambiguity is whether or not they're actually still who they they think they are and we don't know and we're never it's never confirmed although i read a theory a while back about the way they light the eyes apparently betrays it but honestly i couldn't give a shit sure. yeah I've heard, <laughs> <laughs> i find the people who some- those movies it's like if you if you think you've solved the movie there's a good chance you are an idiot
2: Right, yeah, right. It, it's not the the purpose is to figure out the ending. Like, I heard these two guys having a discussion in my, one of my classes the other night. They were saying that there was this theory going around online that McCready puts gasoline in the bottle of alcohol he's drinking to see if it would have a reaction when Childs drank out of it. Like, the thing wouldn't like gasoline. And I had to, like, stop and say, what the fuck are you idiots talking about?
0: <laughs> hey, I'm just going to invent a thing that could maybe have maybe happened in the movie. And that's I'm yeah. just going to. Just no that,
2: sort of allusion to any sort of behavior at all. But uh, um, I digress. Well,
1: um yeah, it, it's uh it's the one of, of the four that we watched, the thing I think is just like has like the perfect um metaphor. Like it's almost like too perfect to talk about. I mean it's not, but it, it's it it's almost like so perfect that like talking about it um sort of uh denigrates it. Um it's hard to articulate how in words like how 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 good it is and and how malleable it is it's, um, it's an in a good way
0: it's an interesting film because halloween was kind of a, halloween was a runaway success and it was basically sex and violence combined and it's quite tame on both fronts and very well constructed but it's um at the time it was an unusual thing slashers were not a normal part of film grammar and it was you know part of the adjusting for audiences and maybe the why it took a, a couple of efforts before people accepted slashers is because they are a fundamentally absurdist kind of a structure it 's literally just people are all in a certain area, and it 's just one dude and it 's just a series of people being murdered and like it's it 's a very abstract kind of a story structure in a lot of ways um and the slasher would become increasingly abstract but halloween was was hugely successful and it was it was a huge uh, kind of you know calling car of John Carpenter, really made his career. Um, the thing was not the thing flopped at cinema when it came right. out, and it's it, it was derided by critics for being just absolutely disgusting. Um, which they're absolutely <laughs> right; it is disgusting, and it's amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to imagine looking back at it now because in the, you know era with special effects and everything going into CG and like computer modeling becoming so incredible that it's it's literally getting difficult to spot replicating entire people in films is at the un- you know? valley,
1: uncanny valley
0: it, yeah it to to a certain degree sometimes it's still very noticeable but you know with a little bit of a reserve that disney has completely lacked from its filmography um you can you can get away with a lot with cg but um i i do think the thing and something always struck me growing up watching it, and it was just the coolest looking movie. The special oh, yeah. effects are just amazing. And I watching it now, the special effects are still amazing. Yeah, like, that, I think nothing. that's what I yeah. took
1: away. That's what I took away most. Uh, and, and it was funny because uh, I think, yeah, the thing was the first one I watched, and it kind of took me right back to watching those early Cronenberg movies is because a lot of those have, uh, have just like the great uh, special effects. And, And I was kind of like thinking about, um, and I was asking a friend, like, why, like, why, why don't we do this anymore? Like, I understand that, like, um, maybe the artistry has changed, or or we don't have like the industry in place that has this artistry. Um, And because I I know, like, it takes a lot of time, but so does uh, constructing CG images. But um, but listening to the making of uh the thing uh where it correctly featured um the the artist the special effects artist uh pretty heavily he was talking about how they pretty much had one take and if they didn't if they didn't get it then it was going to mean like well i have to stay up all night now and then we have to shoot it again and get it in one take and it's like oh well that's not really a viable business model yeah, no, it's, still, I mean, Rob it's, Bodden
2: spent like months working on a lot of these things and most of them end up being set on fire on camera, so you can only imagine right. <laughs> that's such a risky proposition to do. But uh I you know uh, Carpenter pulls it off. Yeah,
0: it's 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 one of that story. I think with 80s films, it's this idea that, you know, they spend months and months making models and putting everything together and then, yeah, and trying to get just enough mechanical action, but then will it work on camera? Will it work the right way on camera? It's getting blown up. If it gets blown up and one of the cameras doesn't catch it, they can't, you know, they'd have to build another one just to blow it up again. CG just is so much more forgiving. It takes a long time to do, but it's mm-hmm. no longer than that, and they can change everything fundamentally on the film as they're doing it. So it's kind of a no brainer, but honestly, it's not the same thing. And I, I've always, I find myself, recently I've been watching much like Ray Harryhausen movies, and it's just like, like there's you just can't. I just I just feel like those physical models and practical effects are just so much more in the spirit of filmmaking. But that's kind of a that's a bit of a kind of a like a lofty arsehole thing to say. But it just it rings true in my head when I when I'm watching these movies. They trigger something that's just so much more pleasing to me than mm-hmm. than a lot of these CG movies that have equal, some of them have equally inventive elements to them and they certainly said many of them are very good, but there's just something watching the thing, and just, like, I can't imagine how... Yeah, yeah, and and I can't imagine how critics... Like, to me, it's amazing that people didn't like this movie, because, yeah, it's obviously, it's gross. I mean, it's completely grotesque and over the top, but the imagination, I mean, even captured of the, the... One of the most famous scenes where the guy's head grows legs and splits off from his body and runs away from his burning his body to get rid of the thing and his head just splits off and runs away and one of the the guys just looks at notices and he's like you gotta be fucking kidding me and it's just like the whole movie feels like that from a special effects standpoint you're just like what are they gonna do next what could they where can they even go with this um you know it's like it's just crazy straight like start to finish, every model it is like the, oh, yeah. the birth of the so dog. many nightmares, the dog monster and they were spraying those dogs, that green goo is apparently the gelling agent in Twinkies, and that's its natural color is bright green <laughs> and that's that's used in food, if you've ever eaten a Twinkie, you've eaten what they sprayed those huskies with, so that's always reassuring
2: <laughs> That uh, um, that dog actor is one of the best animal actors I've ever seen on film you know, yeah, Just, really, the, just he's, the way he walks around and looks at things, it's, it's just yeah. so
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They don't train them like they used to. Uh, I will say I can't remember uh, if this is true or not, but um, uh, if the thing felt like the longest of the four, and um, I I I well, I I would probably say that it's the smartest of them, uh, and maybe the best if I wanted to pick one, but um, uh, I think it was also. How do I put it? It wasn't boring. It was just kind of like it was it was probably the driest. Um, I think that uh, the fog is like kind of silly, but it also has like this weird like Jaws feeling to it. That's kind of like, oh, this is fun. And and like this community feel Halloween is is just so like um, sorry, there's an ambulance. Um, it's going after that Halloween. It, Halloween is just like so, uh, so tight. Um, and the fog is, is just a little bit, um, not, but it's just a different thing. Um, but also another thing I want to say is that it reminded me of a, uh, current, sorry.
0: That, that ambulance, is it pulling in or, or are you, do you have like- yeah,
1: yeah, I, I'll be right back. Uh, no,
0: um,
1: <laughs> but no, it, it, it reminded me a lot of a 2017 horror film and I know this might be triggering for Jack, but, um. Uh, it came at night uh had this same like core uh and it must have been a huge influence on the thing well yeah, that's, um,
0: but, that's part of why i probably didn't like that movie so much like <laughs> yeah, I could be yeah, sitting at home watching the thing again well
1: i hadn't seen the thing uh when i saw it came at night but but the thing that that i liked about it came at night was this this idea of like not being able to trust each other even though that might not be uh something that they even need to worry about um yeah, I don't
0: know. Yeah I, mean, yeah, I mean, both films are essentially mirroring a breakdown of social, of social order um, within a microcosm, and both of them have an exceptional event that accelerates that. It's kind of a very, it's almost a Stephen King a thing. Is. Almost every Stephen King movie is like that. It's like something crazy happened, and now a small group of people who yeah. definitely represent all of society will decay before your eyes and leave <laughs> you feeling very cynical. Yeah. Um, and that works to very different degrees within Stephen King books, like not at all in *The Mist*, which is a piece of shit. So, um, but uh, or or um, *Dreamcatcher*, which I watched recently, which is insane.
2: <laughs>
1: a um, is a, that also, I thought of <laughs> *Dreamcatcher* when I watched the thing because it is like this sort of like Arctic uh, atmosphere yeah. and these these men on a trip. Obviously, one is like a silly piece of garbage. Fun. And 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 then the
0: thing where the weird speech impediment boy ET showed up and rubbed their backs (laughs) or whatever and gave them fucking telekinesis. Yeah, I mean, it was. There's a a lot of.
1: uh, And then. You ever see uh,
2: Kurt Russell fight a weasel coming out of a guy's asshole?
1: Yeah, a weasel. yeah, well, Amazing. I mean, let's let's be fair. I mean,
0: yeah. the thing is good, but there are certain elements that stretch credulity. There are certain elements of, that are a little bit unrealistic. Like, for example, in the opening scenes of the film, there are Norwegians who don't speak English, which yeah. is completely absurd. Everyone in Norway speaks better English than we do, and we should just learn to accept them as our superiors and let them do everything. So, well, um,
1: uh, since you mentioned Stephen King, we should probably take that as a, a, a segue. That was gifted to us, R- real quick. Uh, I
2: think uh, Ennio Morricone's score is uh, marvelous. Oh yeah, that's oh, yes, that is really I think, good. I
0: need that's true because Carpenter didn't really, you know, yeah, this is a signature name on this.
2: As much as I love Carpenter scoring his own films, I don't think his sort of synth would work at all in this movie, and Morricone works wonders with the. Yeah the desolate really cool. atmosphere and i think maybe that helped contribute to like carpenter's able to make just really such a more deliberate paced film and really kind of focus on the merits of the storytelling and how everything unfolds and i i honestly wouldn't cut a frame of the movie and um him turning over the scoring duties to morricone really helps him out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think I think Carpenter's music generally comes with a certain air of playfulness. It's it's kind of like, I mean, there's something very alluring about those, those synthesizers and mm-hmm. that sound, that they, they they can be very ominous and dark, but there's always a kind of a welcoming note to them. I don't know, there's something warm in that kind of throbbing kind of sound that they have. Like Even, you know, it, it, no matter how dark the 80s thriller is, there's always, I don't know, just kind of a kind of... Maybe it's because it's I grew up with the sound in movies, but it, it's just... Yeah, it's, it, it always it, it doesn't exactly communicate abject terror. It kind of it, it communicates a terror that I'm very much a part of, that I'm very willingly participating in, or a tension that I'm very willingly participating in. It's a very mm-hmm. it's a very movie sound, and I mean very much like the, the whole synthwave genre of music, which really has taken off in the last couple of years, um, which is built on retro synth sounds. It's built on you know either being done on or synthesizers specifically, or is using computers to emulate or synthesizers and the sounds that they had. I mean, a lot of those are there's entire there's an entire album by synthwave artists of odes to John Carpenter. They all grew up listening to John Carpenter's music, and there was that kind of that playfulness and that element to it. I think that that yeah, I think Jake's absolutely right. Morricone is able to, to kind of narrow the focus and bring it in. Um, and of course, Morricone's score was used in The Hateful Eight, which uh, Tarantino took as kind of his own version of the thing. It has very a couple of similar thematic elements and these outtakes from Morricone's score for The Thing to score The Hateful Eight, which is an interesting, uh, interesting kind of continu- continuation of the movie because they're obviously very, very different on many other many other levels. Like one of makes me, wanna watch, uh, makes me
1: want to watch. Makes me want to watch The Hateful Eight. No,
0: it's it's not bad, oh, but it's much yeah. longer.
1: All right, uh, Stephen King. Uh, who has taken this one? Was that uh, J- That's me, Jack? I believe. Jack, yeah. Okay.
0: yeah, so so Christine, I'm kind of... I. I When we were originally pitching this, we had to pick just four horror movies by Carpenter, and I, I think I originally pitched Christine, and I kind of figured... I was kind of worried it might get shot down, because Christine is not the horror movie that a lot of people, you know, when it comes to Carpenter's horror movies, sure. a lot of times people skip on kind of from the thing, they go straight into Prince of Darkness or In the Mouth of Madness, which are very worthwhile films. And we're not going to discuss in, them here. What
1: about In, in, the, in the Prince of Mouth- Mouthness?
0: Yeah, they talk about that one a lot, Sean. <laughs> yeah, <Mouth laughs> and I Prince. expect, I expect a lengthy, a lengthy essay about that very film on my desk tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Christine seems, in my experience, Christine has always been a Carpenter film that even Carpenter fans, a lot of them, have, you know, they may have watched it, but they've only seen it once. And they never really, and it rarely seems to come up as a favorite. Um, which has always struck me as odd because I genuinely think it's a strong contender for his best film. I think it's a really oh, great film. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's why I, I suggest Christine and no one shot it down. So, you're all people of very good taste. So well done. You passed the test.
1: Uh, and and, um, and it, I, I thought it was uh I thought it was incredible. Um I thought it was the most fun of the group like uh without question. Um in I like I I had the most fun for sure watching this one, but like and I could see like it's a little silly, but that's sort of also part and parcel with with some of those Stephen King uh yeah,
0: I think he tempers King's pro-
1: proclivities
0: yeah. very well in this film in a way that a lot of other, like Frank Darabont, like I just mentioned, The Mist, is a film that cannot temper Stephen yeah. King's worst traits yeah, at all. Yeah, I, think the, I think the new he's it so... film is terrible. Oh, does God. the same thing? It can't. It like it's all the worst of King on the screen, just rolling around
1: in it like filth.
2: Yeah, and you got to hand it to Carpenter; he gets a lot of mileage out of a film about a
1: killer <laughs> car. Yeah, I, I feel like the brakes never, like it just never hits the brakes. Um, but uh, when I, I didn't know what Christine was before, I, uh, like before this whole uh, venture, like I was talking to, to Myros. Um, about the lot and and he was like oh yeah you probably watch christine i was like christine is that like related to that 2016 rebecca hall movie and he's like no it's about a, a killer car in the 50s or 60s or whatever and uh, it's like oh that's silly um and it, it that's that's kind of what's so great about it is that he takes this thing that like is a silly premise and plays it so straight-faced uh even though like some of the characters uh are a bit like flamboyant i don't know if that was like him trying to figure out what it, what they would be like in the in the whatever time period they were like some of some of the the changes i mean are are a bit like uh the 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 changes in in our protagonist are a bit flamboyant where it's just kind of like that's silly like all of a sudden, he has this totally different look and the way that he acts about his car, but it all it all works together in this strange alchemy of, of, of sort of a straight face. Yeah,
0: it's it's an interesting film from my perspective because uh, it, I watched a lot of like the uh, the supplements and making of and audio commentary and stuff just because I had them to hand and it's better than you know working. So uh, I ended up watching a bunch of them, and I mean, there was a lot of talk about the idea of the car being this, you know, the the car being this, uh, um, this succubus, this influence that draws the protagonist Arnie in and Arnie's a geek and he he's bullied and he's just not, you know, he's not a success at life and then he finds beat up old car and he's just enraptured in it. Like, and there's no explanation for how enraptured he is with the car. He just, he's absolutely smitten with it and he takes the car and he restores it and it turns out the car is actually sentient and, and murderous and it kind of starts becoming one with, with Arnie and kind of like sucking his life force out. The odometer runs backwards and Arnie starts becoming more and more kind of ghoulish. Um, but what's interesting is that, I mean, they, they always, in in the, the framing of the film, they're always talking about this kind of sexuality between Arnie and the car, that the, the car is Christine, it's a female, and it seduces Arnie, and Arnie is seduced by this car and becomes a different person and becomes, you know, lost to it. And... That's one way of reading it, but um, I kind of felt looking at it now. It's 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 kind of more. You know, the car is the car is only female because Arnie is lusting after it. That's kind of like uh, his own. You know, it's not the other way around. It's like a projection. Yeah, and and what what it feels to me like is the Christine is honestly it's a fantastic allegory for like toxic masculinity. It's a fantastic allegory for a guy who becomes so subsumed with his own kind of preconceptions of how to be a man that he basically alienates everyone around him and becomes just a really toxic person to be around and the film supports it surprisingly well and I think it's kind of given the film a new like in a weird way as toxic masculinity is now an identifiable phrase that you know you can search for on the internet and get many many results for that Christine has almost become a newly relevant film I think it's something that a lot of people could kind of crack open with a new with a new perspective and um, if you only know, think, someone would write about it
1: uh it
0: time <laughs> <laughs> and no one reads anymore anyway
1: yeah it's all True, that video content that.
0: yeah we're yeah, pivoting yeah. to video where we is that that was happening
1: well i guess john carpenter was pivoting to video with his uh trailer for christine or whatever which I didn't watch, but... I um, haven't watched
0: that yet, either. You want to release it? Did you release it today, or... Like, no, know.
1: it was, like, a couple of weeks ago.
0: Oh, really? Oh, uh, shit, I'm just off the pace now. I think
1: yeah. uh, I think part of what makes
2: Christine not feel silly to me is that a lot of what they're doing is absolutely fucking dangerous on screen. Yes. Yeah, um, it's
0: definitely got that eighties veneer of like we don't give a shit.
2: Yeah, or the bullies smash up the car, and one of them almost falls off, and uh, and there's glass flying everywhere, and like yeah, oh we, no, it's uh, this is safe.
0: Yeah, yeah. When I when I watched that, I was I, that was actually when I was watching the making of features. I was curious about that because like you say, the bullies just say bring like sledgehammers and they start wailing on the car like smashing the windshield the, the headlights, smashing the trunk and the the hood and everything and just like really swinging into it and they're all in piling in together broken glass everywhere and i was and no eye protection no gloves i was watching that scene and i'm like man that that is really not safe to do i wonder what precautions they took um and then I watched um, the making of and John Carpenter was just talking about how yeah there were no precautions they all got caught and bruised and uh the, the main bully started passing out after a while because he was exerting himself so hard, just trying right, to smash this right. car. And it's like, Oh, okay. So yeah, that's, that's, you know, there's a certain verisimilitude in just letting a bunch of guys actually smash a car to pieces. But luckily no one was like blinded
1: by a piece of flying glass or something. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of, uh, wrecking the car, um, the first time that they wrecked it or that he finds it wrecked, I was kind of like, uh, at a loss is like, okay, what's going to happen now? Like, I think the rest of the movie is still about the car. And Mm. I, I I kind of presume that it was going to be like regenerated. And then when it happens on screen, I was just like really taken aback and and dumbfounded by how cool that was and how believable it was. And, and it's
0: such a good effect. yeah, Yeah. And
1: it turns out that like he, he like the first cut, I think that he watched, um, Like it was off screen and it was, and he was like, Oh, something's not right. And it's just like, that's so crazy. Like I I feel like, uh, it's, it's, I I feel like a lot of movies, uh, now, not nowadays, but since then would, it would be happy to take out like this, this easy way. Obviously now it'd be in CGI, but, um, they could have easily, you know, I would have expected the movie is a better way to say it that like, you know, he just, it shows up again. Um but not to actually watch it regenerate. Yeah,
0: no, I yeah. think I think it's a great scene. I think it's a really important scene. They were right, because they they did originally they, they didn't shoot the regeneration and then they realized they felt they had to have it. And the regeneration is literally and it it
2: looks so, yeah, it, it yeah. so amazing.
0: Yeah, and it looks so amazing. they literally they they just set up internally a bunch of pneumatic jacks inside the vehicle and they basically just they set them all off, so it basically pulled the car inwards and squ- crushed the car, and then they just played that backwards. But it's so seamless, it doesn't it doesn't look reversed at all. It's really incredibly, yeah. like, a great practical effect. But I feel like that is – it's the first overtly supernatural, like, one of the very first sure. really completely supernatural elements of the film. And, it, and I feel like that's the part where the sense of that spectacle – this unhing- this this final unhinging from reality where we really, really realize that the car is not is not just a projection onto the car, that it is the car is actually a supernatural force. Now we can still interpret, like I say, as a either a sexual thing or as as toxic masculinity as a car representing that, whatever. But it's it's a feeling that's where Arnie is beyond the point of of return. That he's completely in this in this element. He's he's basically if people were trying to pull him back from the edge, he's he's completely self actualized as a basically a a servant to the car from then on in, and then the car starts doing everything it wants to do, which is. Super cool and also still super dangerous because we were just talking about like they set the car on fire and they had a stunt driver in it who couldn't see out because the windows were blacked and he had like safety gear on and he had to drive like 70 miles an hour with no visibility while chasing someone. And it's like, yeah, these are not things that most people would agree to do now, but I'm right. glad, I'm glad. Um, life assurance was apparently yeah. very cheap in the 80s.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, glad. I'm glad there were no rules around then for directors like Carpenter to, to take these risks and make their films great. <laughs> <You gotta laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm glad that yes. there was a uh, uh, yeah.
1: I'm glad that there were uh, pneumatic jacks set up uh, like there were instead of uh, pneumonic Johnnies um but i think th- this is like the one that that i would probably like rush out and like buy first to to to, to rewatch again just cuz really? it, it's so fun and oh yeah and and to think about uh some of the stuff that uh you were talking about um as far as this toxic masculinity allegory um but
2: he's, uh he's like he's regressing to this 1950s gracer
1: yeah, yeah. And I did, but of course,
0: the fifties were the good old days. It was like right. when, you know things were less complex, and I mean, and the films their treatment is, of women. No, and that's and that's exactly. I mean, they introduced the main the main character, the main female character. I mean, I mean, they were introduced with the line of "She looks smart, but she's got the body of a slut," which yeah. is right, you know, right, which right. lays down the template for how you know, even the good guy character is still friends with the guy who said that. It's not like, you know, this was said by the bullies, the bad guys in the movie. This is just how men view women, even here. Yeah, and it then, took
1: me a while to figure out who was the bad guys and who was the good guys, because I was like, oh, finally, someone's like, you know, saying it. How yeah.
0: It and I think Arnie just, Arnie becomes increasingly, like, he just becomes alpha male. I mean, he becomes basically uh uh what would you say, a, a he he the person who brings violence out First, he's cocky, confident, aggressive, yeah. aggressive to the point of threatening people like he doesn't win arguments. It's just people back off because they don't know what he's going to do because he's genuinely unpredictable, which in a lot of ways are, I mean, the the tenets of alpha maildom is just to have the freedom to do whatever you want because you're just dangerous and no one's going to, yeah. you know, people will just back down. And I think that's into the car and the car and its condition, the, the the obsessive care of the car, which, in you know, I mean, these the classic cars have that connotation anyway of a kind of a, right. a power and a shine. I mean, they're, they're basically just huge, massive, powerful engines and incredible hulking steel bodies. I mean, American classic cars are like incredibly inefficient vehicles for moving around in but they have that allure and yeah. um, so you know i think i think it's, it's one of those films that you know it, it kind of it captures a really interesting perspective on masculinity and i think carpenter plays with that throughout many of his films certainly the thing Um, you know this idea that men are like his films are really about men and they're not very positive depictions of men his heroes are often men as well but they're they're often insufficient to the task if it's donald pleasance yeah. in the halloween series or kurt russell is you know he, he appears to succeed in the thing but the yeah, there's an ambiguity laid out there right. and christine has the same kind of an end to where they crush the car but there's that little oh, animation yeah. of the cube at the end yeah. um, which you know lets us know that maybe things aren't you know things aren't what they seem so yeah i think there's there's an element of uh, a kind of a, a gender construction within the film
1: well, um, and i also think that it would be good to like sort of re- revive this because um I mean, i'm sure people a lot of people know about it and all that stuff but it's not talked about like of course the thing um of course that is still like super relevant but I feel like people know the thing, like people are familiar with it. Whereas Christine, like, like I said, like I didn't know what it was and sort of this bringing it up and, and bringing it back up within this context, I think would be really cool to see done. Yeah, well, I,
0: it's definitely I think it's it's an underappreciated carpenter in my experience. Again, people have seen it. People are like, oh, it's good. But, you know, everyone comes back to Halloween and the thing. Um, or they live is, is another one that I found a lot of people really enjoy, and they're all really great films. Oh, yeah, but I think for Chris, sure. Christine Christine to me is really Carpenter with the most. It's got the most brain behind it. Um, Plus it, has those, be more, uh, it has
1: those. It has those camera flourishes. What do you call them? The uh, the
0: oh, you, you mean the, the lens flares? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the lens, lens flares. Flare. God,
1: I couldn't think of. Yeah, yeah it has really. those great lens flares.
0: <laughs> a lot of good lens flare in this movie.
2: Yeah. This was uh my first time I I knew all about Christine what it was when this was my first time seeing it for this podcast. Oh, cool. Uh yeah, and I I like Sean I really enjoyed it and I I do I do think it fits in amongst one of Carpenter's upper tier films. Um just like two two major things that stood out, stood out to me, um the shot of Christine on fire dr- barreling down the highway at oh, night. That yes. would be like that would be the highlight in any other horror director's uh work. I, it's such a such a, oh, oh, it's an amazing, bullion, amazing
1: shot ch- chasing down that uh ch- chasing point, down that yes. bully reminded me a lot of uh the are you guys familiar with the karma police video oh yeah
0: yeah that's true yeah. i didn't even thought of that
1: no it's, uh, it's a just a like head. a perpetual uh this guy getting chased down by by a car but it's basically the same shot uh just held for longer but it's really interesting
2: I'm familiar with the rabbits in the rain with the uh, the Danny Levon, the guy from uh, Holy Motors, there's a music oh. video he's in where he gets he's running down a highway and he keeps getting hit by cars. Um, huh. Yeah. Anyways, it's happened, and, to, it's
0: happened to us all.
2: Yeah. The <laughs> other thing I I really thought was great is uh, Harry Dean Stanton, rest in peace. He is oh, yeah. fucking cool in this movie. Like he plays a cop really well, and I don't think I've seen him as a cop in any other
1: film. Oh, that's apparently why he took it. Uh, yeah. he, he said he didn't want to, or he was tired of being the bad guy. Uh so he was he was intrigued by it being uh, a police officer. But yeah, he he, he walks and talks the part really well. Like yeah. he, he interrogates is, he's the kids really like good. a cop.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's he's really good. I
0: do have confusion about um the last scene where they crush the car and he's there. And it's a sort of, like, <laughs> dis, to like, wh- how did they wrap up this case? What was the conclusion of this case? Like, <laughs> did he buy the Haunted... Like, it was the car all along. Like, why did he show to watch a car getting junked? And also, his surname is, like, Junker or something, which is, <laughs> I think, a little interesting. I don't know whether... I don't think that amounts to any kind of significant commentary, but I sure. thought that was a bit interesting. But yeah, De Stanton is... As ever, he's great, but yeah, he 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 doesn't have a huge role in the film, but um, he's really solid. Um, and Robert Prosky yeah. is amazing in his small role as the as the garage owner, who's just a really just gruff asshole, uh, who's kind of not all bad, which contrasts like to say his amazing performance in Michael like Man's Thief, where he's a gruff asshole who is absolutely worse than you could ever imagine. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting uh, contrast between them, but he's it's interesting to watch the way that Carpenter shoots that. We talk about Carpenter's cinema language. I mean, the, his use of angles to create... And it's something that's done throughout it. It's Arnie becomes increasingly a dominant character. At first, he's kind of a, a kind of mewling sap who gets picked on by everyone and everyone towers over him, including Prosky in some of the most extreme angles where you know, it's shot over Prosky's shoulders. He talks to Arnie, and Arnie is like leaning down to try and fiddle with the car as he's mending, and it. it's like he's tiny compared to this hulking cigar-chomping yeah. guy. And, and then as the film progresses, Arnie starts to command the high-grounded camera, and it's something yeah, that's that so good. Yeah, Carpenter. Carpenter just has that just such a strong grasp of film grammar, and it, yeah. it's something. I mean, going back to our original point about auteurs and this idea. I mean, I feel like Carpenter is very much. Kind of indebted to someone like, say, John Ford, in terms of uh, someone oh, sure. who doesn't who doesn't consider himself to be a really like a highfalutin artiste, but that he's he, there's an absolute kind of cohesion in his work and uh, a very clever. Um, perspective and grasp of how cinema works that, that colours all of his work and makes his work just incredibly easy to digest and they're both very classical filmmakers their, their work is designed to be Taken in with the least amount of work, like there's nothing, mm-hmm. there's nothing that breaks classic film conventions here. It's not like a Goddard film or something that starts work starts calling attention to itself or the jump cuts and things like that. There's nothing like that. It's it's completely slick and smooth.
2: Well, I don't think Godard had a car that healed itself on camera, but uh, <laughs> well, weekend would have been different. Oh uh, well, yeah, the car accident <laughs>
1: weekend the scene it would have just last. Can you, imagine, last the whole can you time? imagine?
0: Yeah, can you imagine a ten minute tracking shot of just cars re thing on the road that would be amazing shit they need to
2: remake that yeah somebody needs to make that any filmmakers out there do it weekend
0: um, 2 the rebirth of France
2: speaking I of cars uh, and films I think uh, Paul Walker did a great job in this movie too as Arnie's best friend
1: yeah yep yep uh true <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no I was gonna say uh, uh, well first of all um, I think uh, Jack's uh Closing comments are, are really good and, and really sort of like um, articulate why I was taken with this experience. Is, is just being able to like I, I felt like I was in film school uh, all over again, like watching these these things that aren't necessarily like seminal pieces. Like something like Christine is not necessarily like a seminal film, but it's just like has all the right pieces in the right place. Um, and now that I like think about it, having watched They Live, like I'm I'm familiar with They Live like pretty. I know it well, and uh, now I have to like sort of put that back into this. Like, I, I have to be like, oh, this is Carpenter. I never kind of watched it with like that that understanding. And now, like, I I think that that was even like more campy than than these. And um, I guess um, now they my question in, is,
0: they live now, in I, big trouble in Little China. Definitely are. Uh, you, you've got some dimensions of Carpenter to go. That's what, there.
1: Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is where where should I go next?
0: I think Big Trouble in Little China is just something that just has to be seen to like there's no there's no sense in telling someone about that movie. You just gotta watch
2: it. That's true. I highly recommend Big Trouble in Little China, not just to Sean, but to every every boy and girl out there in the world.
0: Yeah, and Kurt have, have Russell. Fun. Kurt Russell plays one of the great heroes in <laughs> <Russell>. Big Trouble. <laughs> Um, so yeah, no, I would recommend yeah. that. I would also I mean, I would say if you're if you're taken with Carpenter, certainly um In the Mouth of Madness particularly is would probably in a lot for a lot of other people I think that probably would have taken one of the slots here. Um we were focusing more on I guess classic Carpenter. In the Mouth of Madness yeah. is maybe his most fully formed, darkest horror film alongside the thing. Um and it's a very oh. lovecrafty
2: the oh, uh, surreal we- thing. We we mentioned one but I I really I think these are two excellent films. The first one in particular is Assault on Precinct 13
1: which we right. mentioned. Oh, right right right. That's I no, I've phenomenal. seen this, I've seen the remake so I don't need to to watch this one. No you, sh- you should you should still see it it's good. <laughs> and uh, Escape
2: from New York is also great. Escape I from New York to... is a lot of fun. I mean Escape and then, from, is LA LA from LA.
1: Is, uh... I feel like I saw that when I was a kid at the drive-in. I I just remember like surfing on waves or something but yeah. uh yeah. and a lot of anarchy yeah uh, that's
0: that's that's more in um i mean i still kind of enjoy that movie but it's it's kind of lapsing into a campiness that maybe yeah. was not was not as present was better tempered i guess in some of his earlier work it, i think i think part of it was down to a shrinking budget and um, other later carpenter films like ones that i'm kind of undecided on are like vampires and ghosts of mars ghosts of mars i'm pretty sure is a terrible film but it's terrible in a kind of an unusual way. Um, it's just like it's it's the weirdest thing because it's literally it's just like um it's just like, the soundtrack is just blaring like trash <laughs> metal or new metal for the whole thing. And it's just monsters on Mars. It's like claustrophobic and ridiculous. But it just it just feels like it, it just feels like such a product of its time by someone who shouldn't be a product of the time. Like John Carpenter was not surely the guy who was listening to new metal stuff. Okay. Trash metal, I guess, more accurately than new metal. I think Anthrax did a lot of soundtrack. Um, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's just a very weird film. I would recommend I, I think most people would agree, probably, In the Mouth of Madness is Carpenter's last essential film. Okay. Uh, I, don't think, I can't think I'm remembering anything else. And Sam Neill leads that up, so I mean, you've got someone with some caliber there, certainly, as a the man from Possession and other things. He knows his way around a horrific... Uh, film about cloying madness. Um, <laughs> well, and of course, if, you should always I, I go think, back to memoirs of an invisible man.
1: <laughs> sure, sure, I will. Uh, I, and, and and I hope that this has been a good guide to uh, maybe those that are uninitiated uh, that are listening. Um, and also, so I would say uh, seek some of these out um, or reseek them out uh, under some of the lenses that we've talked about. And then I would also say that you should read the uh, interview uh, with John Carpenter, a very short interview that appeared in The Guardian yes, er, uh, this week, which it came out the 10th of October. But it, it also gives you sort of some insight into where he is now and uh, the the – clear like nihilism that he operates under and which is also i think reflected in some of these he's, movies
0: he's kind of funny actually because if you watch some like um his audio commentaries or listen to his audio commentaries like half the ones on his films like particularly when kurt russell and him are in the room it's clearly they're just two friends chatting and like he talks well, about he also said he
1: hates like, to watch his movies so.
0: yeah yeah he doesn't like watching his own movies and he's kind of like his movie he's very professional his films are obviously very well put together etc but then like he starts talking like he starts talking to like Kurt Russell and they just go off top of this. I think on, I can't remember which Audrey boundary might be a big trouble, in little China, but like literally that's they just the start line. talking about their kids, like little kids. <laughs> They're just talking to like, yeah, oh, yeah, it goes, it goes off. The- it's like, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's just two guys in a room, just chatting. who haven't seen each other for a while. And I feel that's very much represented in the guardian interview of like, Hey John, want to talk
1: about your movies. No, eh, not really. <laughs> right, right. I like video. I like this one video game. Uh, <laughs> okay. all right. Well, uh, I hope that you've had fun and uh, thanks guys for talking through these movies with me. I, I, I really appreciated it of and uh, enjoyed it. Um, and I can't wait to rewatch some of these. Um, if you like what you're hearing, uh, subscribe, rate, and review all those things uh, for the OpVac cast um, on the Optimus Vaccine Network. Uh, you can also uh Talk to us by uh, submitting an email to uh, vaccine at gmail, or you can find us on Twitter at vaccine. Uh I'm there at Mr. Glynis. Uh, Jake is at Jake Trapila. Is that right?
2: That is absolutely correct.
1: And Jack is there at the real Jack Eason.
0: Yes. Yes, that's All me. right. Not the Christian singer that apparently shares my name. <laughs>
1: Uh, um, all right. Well, uh, that's all for us this evening.